This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, a segment of Black America has long been obsessed with promoting images or spokespersons that are positive representations of, quote, the race, unquote. But has that ever worked as a black strategy for empowerment? And a scholar says it's vital that everybody read, but warns that lots of Western literature is bad for your mental and political health. But first, in the wake of last month's huge George Floyd protests, polls show that majorities of white people now agree that blacks don't get the justice they deserve in the United States. But what about fairness in housing, health care, employment, and all other aspects of life. Amson Hagen is a PhD candidate in anthropology at the University of North Carolina. Hagen's made a study of deservingness, what kinds of people Americans think deserve humanitarian care. America is a place where deservingness, or, or let's say fairness, is something that is value system that's adjudicated unevenly. It's based on inequality. So the idea of fairness relates to the idea that certain people deserve less than others, but what they get is actually what they deserve, and that in and of itself is fair. So reading through American history with this treatment to indigenous peoples and black peoples, minority peoples, since Reconstruction, the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century, have all this, this sort of debates are centered around the idea that blacks and minorities are agitating for things that they don't actually deserve, or things that are outside of what U.S. white society has circumscribed around the abilities and the benefits that they think are enough for black people. Yes, the concept mm -hmm. that people deserve what they get locks in the racial stratification of society, perpetuates it. Absolutely. It also limits the horizons of possibility for everyone involved. And healthcare, really interesting enough, especially in this particular moment of the COVID-19 pandemic, this issue hasn't gone away. What would the universal healthcare system, what could it mean for a place like the U.S. where minority populations are differentially exposed or made because of racism susceptible to contracting the virus at rates far lower than white people. So what would it mean then? So again, this idea of, uh, of COVID-19, the 21st century in America is seen as, well, this is fair. Everyone's sort of exposed fairly, but we know that that's not the case. The whole concept of healthcare as a right is seen as anathema, not just among Republicans, but huge sectors of the Democratic Party as well. 
Yes, corporate America has long been uh, in bed with the sort of corporatized medical system that we have that is not founded on the fulcrum of health. It's not founded on that particular notion of health or, or good health or the of keeping people safe, but on the ability for people to pay for access to that particular system. So healthcare insurance uh, in and of itself is ridiculous. The United States has long convinced people, everyone involved, that a middleman, a sort of broker, is essential and, and, and sort of necessary, particularly because it aligns with capitalism, which is also seen as an American birthright. Single-payer health care separates health insurance from a job, and that removes a reason for a working person to keep a bad job or a bad employer, and thus it weakens the employer's hold on the working class as a whole, not just black folks and brown folks who've been excluded, but every working person. Yes, and deserving this again sort of makes sense as a, as a prism through which to analyze this particular set of relations. In America, labor is the thing that sort of gives people, individuals, value. And that's awful for many reasons. But it also reinforces the idea of corporate interests and the sort of managerial class as being important to us laborers. So we, we should be thankful that we have a job because through this job, we're allowed to have health care. So in the sense like labor are exploited and extracted, labor comes first. And our ability to secure health care is a distant second. Of course, in any sort of situation where a country says that, oh, we care for the people who, who make up this wonderful, bountiful nation, it would make sense to treat the health of those people, those laborers first, before we even think about labor relations and negotiations. However, capitalism has flipped that relationship on its head, and we think of exploited, extracted labor first before we think of health. And the idea of having one's health care tied to one's employment also perpetuates the idea that one is only worthy of health if one has a job. And the lords of capital, of course, oppose universal health care because if health care is a right, why not employment as a right? Why not shelter as a right? Why not education as a right? Absolutely. And I take solace in the fact that there are many organizations and many groups of people organizing specifically around those sorts of agendas, health care as a right education as a right. The fact that we've been made complacent or at least sort of sheepdogged to the idea that we need gatekeepers for all of these sorts of institutions in order to not just enjoy them, but participate in them. That has long been in the workings, long been the product of the Republican-Democrat duopoly that we have as a form of political representation in this country. And if we posit that healthcare is a human right, one, there's no need for a health insurance middleman, which only serves to prop up the duopoly that is backed and lobbied by this healthcare insurance conglomerate. And then when we begin to think of these sorts of entities as education or these ideas of education, healthcare, housing as human rights, then you begin to think about, wow, that the power of people to actually not just hold 
their elected officials accountable, but actually to exact change and movement in the periods between elections. I think that's really powerful. And again, you start thinking about unions and formal and informal organized labor and communities, and that's really, really powerful. Again, the Democrat-Republican duopoly can't monetize that. There's no space for them. Yes. So we see that in this healthcare debate, what's at stake is not just the fortunes of insurance companies, which are an important part of finance capital, but the whole relationship of the capitalist rulers to everybody else in terms of what the people can demand from society. And people are demanding this now. You see in this particular moment, the groundswell of support for police abolition, the chorus of folks demanding this particular relationship to their communities was maybe a, a bit smaller. But now people are open to the idea that we may not need police or a professionalized killing force for which we pay tax dollars to support in our communities. And again, you're right, this Medicare for All debate could be the sort of uh, pathway through which we begin to, in a large way, analyze and reconfigure our relations to all these other elements of society, healthcare, education, housing, that sort of stuff. So there's a lot at stake in this. And it is interesting how, as the Democratic establishment has sort of coalesced around Biden, that this Medicare for all or universal health care debate has been talked about less in the broader political landscape. But we'll see if it comes back to the fore and it'd be really telling. But but now abolition is the sort of word of the day. Again, another way of reconfiguring our relation to labor and to the state. Entitlements is a dirty word in capitalist circles, but there's been an explosion of entitlement proposals. For example, the guaranteed annual national income, which was an idea that even Richard Nixon toyed with in the early 70s. But Andrew Yang, the Democratic presidential candidate, resurrected it in the current debate. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that the idea of universal basic income, or UBI, similar to direct cash transfers that have been studied by economists, uh, health economists all over the world, and they've shown that the social material benefits of these transfers are outstanding. You know, the idea that people need money to do things in society has always been the case, but the broader narrative around this is that, you know, paying people would somehow disincentivize them working. And that has proven time and time again, not just in America, but studies conducted in Africa, in Europe, and in Asia, that that is not the case. And we see that now with folks still clamoring to go to work and the one shot of stimulus payments that were distributed over the past few months have not in and of themselves been enough to, one, improve people's conditions for the long term. And two, it definitely has not displaced people's need or desire to work. And you say that something as simple as providing Medicare for all can change the way that white Americans see themselves and their fellow citizens. Yes. And as much as deservingness is an idea that's steeped in inequality, the idea of establishing parity 
with folks who have uh, long been seen as less than in relation to whites could have transformative social effects in terms of the way that white people not just relate to black people and to other folks, but think about themselves. And the idea that, well, black people are common trope that, you know, black people are unhealthy because they eat poorly. Like, no, that's not the case. Or black people are, are unhealthy because, you know, they don't go to the doctor, which isn't the case, or they have a, a higher pain threshold. These sorts of things would go to the wayside if black people had and other minorities had access to health care in the same way that whites do. These sorts of stereotypes exist because of differential aspects, in part because of differential access to health care. You seem to be explaining that the idea of entitlements, of universality, actually is a dagger to the heart of the legacy of the white settler state. Framing these sorts of benefits of being in a nation state, of being in a broader community, whether it's an imagined community or not, as entitlements has that pernicious effect of making them seem as extra, as making them seem more than what is deserved or what is necessary, right? And what we consider, what many of us may consider as entitlements, white people, that's just the way they are. That may be the sort of unspoken truth of what they deserve, right? What they perceive themselves to deserve. But again, if we get away from this idea of not just you, but all of us in general, is thinking of these things as entitlements, we begin to think of them as, you said this earlier, right? A right to education, we consider that as a right, but free, free education, we consider that as an entitlement. But education should be free if it's our right. We should have unfettered access to it. So hopefully, having universal health care would get away from this idea of health in and of itself as being an entitlement, one that's seen as extra and more of a right to which everyone has equal access. So as a political observer... How do you assess the current momentum towards acceptance of real universal rights? I think in the U.S., the political landscape has, at least in the past year or so, been jostling between multiple claims or demands that American people have been making in terms of rights and universal rights and liberties. And again, outside of healthcare, I'm going back to the current sort of demands that are circulating around police and abolition and abolition of the prison industrial complex. And I think those demands, they force people and definitely the political landscape to think about what are essential to life outside of the idea of our limited idea of right. And it's not stated in the, the Bill of Rights that people have the the right to not be killed by the state. That's not written anywhere. But it is uh, something that we can think about. And one would say, sure, that's a right. That's something that we, we should all have that ability. However, right now, the idea of rights revolve around certain material and social sort of institutions that kind of already exist. And the idea of rights is sort of seen as positive rights. So we have the idea to health care. But we haven't been thinking about the sort of abrogation or the, the abolition of certain institutions that's rights bearing. So getting rid of the police would produce rights for all sorts of people, right? Or getting rid of the idea of health insurance, instantiating health, universal health care would sort of produce rights for all of us across the board. So 
I think right now, at least the political landscape and the sort of mainstream media as an extension of that are trying to wrap their heads around what people are demanding and reconciling that with what they think rights actually are. And also now with proposals for and the urgency of a Green New Deal, which would require a total reorganization of the productive forces of society, that would also demand a re-evaluation of what the society is about and what its values are. Yeah, and thinking about society and a Green New Deal, these are the sorts of things that America thinks of as sometimes myopically domestic. But a Green New Deal or the the abolition of police and therefore their relation to American imperialism via its armed forces actually has international and global effects. So thinking on even thinking on that particular scale, we begin to see that And doing these changes, quote unquote, within the U.S. would have global positive effects. And I'm very excited, uh, hopefully excited to see what comes about. What people are agitating for is really heartening. Thinking about how capitalism has iterated and oriented our thinking around what is green in terms of the environment would definitely connect a broader mainstream political sort of apparatus to pre-existing and even long-standing claims, environmental claims that groups have been making over the years, whether that's student movements advocating for universities to divest from fossil fuel investments to holding corporations accountable more than, than now to protecting the environment and to severely curtailing their terms of like waste dumps and things of that nature. So again, the Green New Deal, as it stands now, focused on the production, the generation of jobs for Americans. But there is, I think, some space to think of a Green New Deal or to imagine it as being a way to somehow reconfigure Americans' relation to capital and how this particular relationship and these forms of labor relations are actually destroying the environment that we call home. That was Amson Hagen speaking from the University of North Carolina. Black people, or at least some black folks, have long invested a great deal of energy in putting forward a positive image to properly represent African Americans to the rest of the world. Dr. Brenna Greer is a professor of social sciences and history at Wellesley College. Greer has authored a book titled Represented, the Black Image Makers Who Reimagined African-American Citizenship. Many Blacks thought Bill Cosby, the comedian and millionaire, was an excellent image for Black America until he was convicted on sex charges. Dr. Greer has some thoughts about Cosby and Black representation. I just had a conversation with a good friend yesterday about Bill Cosby, and I said the fact that people were celebrating him or wanted to hold on to him as a representation or a good representation because he was successful in ways that are generally celebrated in U.S. culture, but also just that awareness among African Americans that you know, one bad black person isn't just received as one bad black person. 
that becomes a commentary on black people. So there's this almost reflexive need to support or to come to the defense of that particular person, in this case, Bill Cosby, because in a way you, you reflexively feel that you're coming to your own defense. And that's part of, I think, part of the consequence of having a political strategy or politics of representation that is so tied to ideas of normalcy that support these structures that would have Black people be different from one another, that would have them be anything but a monolith. Right. So I think that there's two things that are going on there that need to not lose this paragon of success in a, you know, in a consumer capitalist republic, but then also not have this person's offenses shine back on the rest of the race. I think he's a really complex, vexing example of of the dynamic that you, you bring up a celebration of imperialism and American exceptionalism is normal, Mm -hmm. at least among white people in the United States. Mm -hmm. Why would black folks want to be represented among that number? Right, right. I mean, and that's the question. And one of the things that I have said to my students and certainly with other historians who I discuss these things with is, you know, I think there's this idea that people of color and that African-Americans, and, you know, and I focus on the post-World War II moment, were immune to the forces that were shaping that moment. And I definitely understand a desire to hope that they would be immune to it and to recognize that, you know, the rise of consumer capitalism and mass consumption was actually at odds with their freedom. One, I think when we're swimming in water, we don't always see what that water is made of. So I think that might be an unrealistic expectation for them at that point in time. But then I also look at myself and I, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday because I had two orders come to my house within quarantine and both of them relied on a gig economy. And both of the people who delivered these separate things were people of color who are vulnerable in this moment. Vulnerable in this moment because my actions make them be out in a pandemic, but then also they're the people who are fulfilling those roles precisely because of their economic position in this society. And yet I pursue actions that serve me and serve my status and serve my convenience because I am some way embedded or entwined or my life is wrapped up in some of these things that my success, I have it in my mind, relies on particular things that I have, or particular things that I do. And so I think this is what I personally have really been struggling with over the past two months in the midst of this pandemic is really what autopsying my own contributions to systemic racism, if not racism, systemic racism or or systems that rely on that because your question is the obvious one. Why would African-Americans want to support these systems that are so, I think, clearly oppressive, but I think that it requires really, again, asking or, or pulling out to view the systems. And I think so many times and our entire culture supports it, it's all about looking at the individual and looking at individual success or measuring yourself, perhaps against others, but not against other populations, or more often measuring yourself against where you were yesterday. And so that keeps us from looking structurally. And that's what's required is looking structurally. 
I don't think you ought to feel strange because of our history of being excluded. The quest for representation actually exists in almost every black head and can coexist with revolutionary aspirations. Right, right. No, I can remember being at a conference several years ago and talking about, you know, I was in my job as an assistant professor at that point for like for about three years, and I had gone home to visit my family, and, you know, my father's in his 70s, African-American man, my brother lives in Chicago, has a young daughter, and my sister worked in social services in Minneapolis, and we were talking about different politics and issues of race, and I was thinking how their thinking of it wasn't the way I think about it as, you know, a scholar or an academic, and I recognized, I really had to check myself. I really recognized that I had gotten really wrapped up in getting some fellowships or having some recognitions within my profession or within my institution that had become more important to me in a sense or had become important enough that I was starting to reject the wisdom of people who had intel and intelligence as people of color who were operating in much less rarefied spaces than I was. And so that I had gotten really wrapped up in the shiny things that were validating me in ways that are celebrated generally, either a raise or a promotion or a particular award or something that would more and more isolate me from the very populations and the people that I tell everybody is the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. So I just think it's a really, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really tempting and more comfortable to just to focus in. And I think it in part really explains why at this moment, I mean, the George Floyd video is horrific. And so I think there's something just about that video alone that sparked what we're seeing now. But I also think you can't take the response that we're seeing out of our, our current circumstances of this COVID moment and this pandemic moment where people, particular structural inequities have just been laid bare and people have the time, which is not to say they're having an easy existence or they have free time to reflect and, to, and are almost being forced to reflect on their position within a larger society. I think that's really part of what is contributing to this response. And I'm really curious to see what happens going forward, particularly if things get, quote unquote, back to normal? What happens when people have access to the conveniences or to the entertainments or the distractions um, or can do their work the way they once were? What happens when that gets rolling again? Will people just return to, you know, kind of focusing on their lives and what they get done every day and, and the successes or achievements, the agendas that they have that are really related to them, you know, to them as individuals or their family. So all of these questions are really, really circling around in my head, constantly plaguing me, but also really, I think, really productive. Well, there's a real question whether things will ever return to what we might call normal and give folks that calm time that you speak of. In talking to groups around the country, I often ask folks if 
they can name one black revolutionary hero besides Christmas addicts, uh, one hero black mm -hmm. of that revolutionary mm -hmm. war era. And nobody, nobody can ever name anybody else. And I think the reason mm -hmm. is because the vast majority of black folks, most of whom were enslaved, supported the British because the British mm -hmm. promised freedom if folks would join the fight against George Washington. And mm -hmm. that real history didn't fit in to the representationalist line that black right. leadership has been talking about ever since. But now right. the monuments to those founding fathers, not just the Confederates, are coming down. Right, right. No, I mean, I, you know, just a couple of days ago, Trump talking about how protesters in, I believe, Seattle, you know, had torn down a statue of George Washington. You know, and I think he said this at the Tulsa rally and people being horrified and, and actually moderates and Democrats being horrified, like that's going a step too far. And then you have to ask, pose the question, why? Why do you think that's going a step too far? And that, as you said, that just gives you a real sense of the stories that we have about the founding fathers that protect them from so many things. But then also what you said in terms of who we leave out of U.S. history, the people of color that we leave out of U.S. history and African-American history because they don't represent in the right way. And in fact, it's funny because the main person that I write about in Represented is Moss Kendricks, who is you know, a public relations expert and really successful throughout the 1950s into the mid-60s. And yet nobody's written about him. And in doing research about it, I could not understand how I was the first one to really engage this person. And my theory, my overall theory, because his business failed in, in the mid-1960s because of some financial missteps. And it's like he was no longer a good representation. He just wasn't talked about after that point. He should be at the front and center of any histories of black marketing and stuff, but he didn't represent well in terms of stories of success of African-American firsts, of African-American success stories. So that's one of my theories about why, why he was left to me or available to me to really dig into first. Even our representation of huge atrocities against black folks, like the massacre mm -hmm. in Tulsa in 1921. Hundreds right. of black folks were slaughtered and almost everybody was run out of town and even run out of the state of Oklahoma. And yet what folks remember, what they constantly are reminded, was that a couple of mm -hmm. blocks of the black community were colloquially referred to as Black Wall Street. And so our right. loss is not in what was inflicted on the mass of blacks. It was the loss of Black Wall Street. Absolutely. And it's and that's so obviously Juneteenth right now is very, very much a topic of conversation. And then also because of President Trump's initial choice to choose that as a rally. And you're absolutely right. In almost every single piece, the loss is posed as the loss of either Black Wall Street and or the wealthiest Black community in the United States at that point in time. That's the real value loss, according to these stories. And I'm not saying that the people writing it are even aware that that's what they're privileging, but that is absolutely the story 
about loss in the Tulsa massacre. I couldn't agree more. And it's really telling. One of the things that is important is to recognize that a politics of representation really need to be thinking about in terms of representation as any marginalized community should really be thinking about exposing the regimes of representation that further marginalize us, as opposed to trying to conform to that regime of representation so that, you know, you fit or that you belong or, or you're accepted. It's really to look at the regime of representation that would make it so that you don't belong, so that you aren't accepted. And, and the thing that bears this out more than anything is actually, you know, the incidences of police brutality that we see because after every single one, you have two sides, essentially, that's a little too simplistic, but two sides with one side, you know, arguing that this person that was the victim of police brutality and, and often a police killing was a thug, was bad, was criminal, you know, like was deviant in some way. And then another side trying to argue that person's worth through the, you know, love of family and, or education or whatever. And, it's, and, and I always tell people that's a trap. That's a trap because all that does is reinforce a measure of worth that is holding up this regime of representation that makes it such that someone who did have a criminal past or did even commit a crime or someone who wasn't successful in all the ways that you and I have been talking about doesn't have a right to the things that other people have rights to, doesn't, have, doesn't fit, doesn't belong, shouldn't be protected. You know, and those are the things, that's a trap that I think marginalized communities and I think African-Americans have fallen to over and over again. So don't try and conform to the regime. Try and point out the regime. Try and dismantle that regime or at least shine a bright spotlight on it over and over and reject it. Say, this is not a regime that I'm going to conform to and arguing for the value of Trayvon Martin's life or Tamir Rice's life, Michael Brown's life, or Breonna Taylor's. These are not, this is not a regime where I'm not going to argue their value on your terms. And that's something that I think that many marginalized communities, but I think is really central to, to a Black politics from the late 19th century forward, and certainly doesn't define all Black politics. I think it's a logical temptation and a place to go, but I, I think it explains a lot of where we are now. Yes, and on the other side of the Black political spectrum, we're encouraged to celebrate the fact that there are more than 50 members of the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington, D.C., but we're not encouraged to ask, what have they done? Well, in fact, they have voted overwhelmingly in favor of militarization of the police. Only two years ago, they voted to make police a protected class. Why should Mm -hmm, we be celebrating mm -hmm. their growing presence on Capitol Hill? And that goes right back to where you started. It's very telling that Joe Biden can say, I'm going to select a woman as a VP candidate. And, you know, and then other people are clamoring for that to be a black woman, which isn't to say that everyone isn't arguing for someone specifically because of their credentials or something. But it's, it's almost as if that's enough. Right. That's enough. We don't care what they do. It's just that they're there, you know, and that in and of itself just reinforces the ideas of what matters more is that they look right. They do the right thing. They're in the right place. And that isolates them from the rest of African-Americans and the responsibility to the rest of African-Americans specifically. You know, I can remember at Wellesley College where I work that the 
got a new president of the college in 2016, Paula Johnson, and when she was an African-American woman, and when she was selected as president, I, I got all these emails and texts from other people at the college, like, this is amazing, this is great, oh, and I said, it is historic, but we don't know her. Let's wait and see what happens, you know, which is in no way am I trying to now impugn Paula Johnson. At the time, I didn't know her, and it's not enough just have a person of color in whatever position, right? And then to stop questioning them. And in fact, that's offensive in itself. And I think that is often what happens. And that, again, goes back to the, what do we consider success? It's successful that they got there. Boom, enough, right? We expect nothing more. It's successful that they got there, and then we stop examining the record. So I think it's a really good point. Dr. Brenna Greer, speaking from Wellesley College. The massive demonstrations against police racism that rocked the United States have also had a profound impact in Canada. Aparna Mistra Tark is a professor of education at York University in Toronto. Dr. Tark has written a book titled Literacy of the Other, Re-Narrating Humanity. She says it's not only a good time to protest, but also to get in some serious reading. We've got these two things going on at once, the protests against anti-Black racism, but we also got COVID-19. And it's a perfect storm in a way for reading because everything, the ways in which that right-wing ideology, I would call it the ideology of whiteness, has come to its limit, I think, Toni Morrison would say, that has reached its limit and is reaching its end has resulted in this perfect storm of things. One, an assault on people and humanity. The second, an assault on the environment and showing the limits to science. So yes, I do think that reading has a place in this, of all things. Reading has a place in this. Where are those limits and why have white ideology reached such a limit? The assault on humanity has been going on for 500 years. There have been multitudinous genocides and the assault on the environment has grown apace as well. I think it's mostly just timing. I mean, that might disappoint people because the people who believe in emancipatory projects or the climate change people. But I just think it's the timing of the two things together mirroring each other that are kind of like a reflection of like what this consumptive, neoliberal American dream is doing to the world. And the diminishment of, of language, the diminishment of thought, the diminishment of meaning for celebrity and an incredibly violent celebrity president for destroying the forest, for eliminating anything that's actually meaningful to us and significant for money, for fame. And we'd have to do really careful. I mean, these are big claims I'm making. We'd really have to do a careful analysis of the ways in which the different kinds of lines of whiteness, I would call, have converged in this moment, the different kinds of logics and desires and motivations and priorities have converged to lead to this moment. And it's global. It's global because, you know, white mythology has been exported throughout the globe and it has different inflections depending on different kinds of colonial adventures. 
And I would say that following a really smart scholar, Michael Rothberg, that it's multidirectional. So to trace all of these things and to try to figure out the relations is very difficult. It seems very abstract, and especially with globalization. But these movements and these events can give us some insight, I think, on how the convergences are made at this historical moment. Because you're right. I mean, we've had protests before. We've had race riots before. We've had pandemics before. But what is it about this time that seems that it can't hold? It can't stay the same. What is it about it? And I think that's what we have to do as readers, as scholars, as teachers. We have to figure that out. If white supremacy and imperialist and colonial ways of thinking is on the back foot, so to speak, why (laughs) do you also write about an intensification of news and information that propagates the rise of populist fascism? Well, I look at this problem as a race scholar, even though I don't present someone who engages language, literacy, and literature. But Jacques Derrida says that race has to have a word in order to be instituted. And I think that with the resurgence of populism also comes protest. And so the protest has come through a racist event that isn't unique in any way in the history of the United States or the history of the world. This is why the riots are worldwide. They have converged around, I think, the history of slavery and its exports. And that has everything to do with colonial history. And it also has everything to do with our present moment where the populace are fighting to keep in power and and to keep this racist structure intact. It's what gives them power. They're a one-trick pony, dictators. They don't have many tricks. They're not thoughtful. They do this one thing, which is to attack other people's children on the basis of race. What other way to do that? In my new book, in the chapter two of my new book, I talk about this. I talk about it in the context of South African apartheid. But how is it that one group of people can terrorize another group of people, attack their children? You know, it's really easy. And you can see that. It's easy, but it's horrific. And the effects are transgenerational, you know, and you can see how this is happening with the children of migrants at the border of the United States how it's happening in Canada with indigenous people, how it's happening in the United States with young men being cut down in the prime of their life, with the glory of their life. And so it's really important to look at race. I think race instantiates violence, but also a history, a set of determinations and demarcations. And I try to understand how race circulates through the language. So when I'm thinking about how the rise of populism I look at it through language. And so, like, for example, with the current president, we get a view of how race is circulating through dog whistles, through the hearkening of the cruelty of segregation, by declaring free season on Black people and people of color and brown children by his white militias and policemen. It really bothers me when people say, you know, you hear the thing that when people say, oh, I don't know if the person is a racist. I don't know his heart. When you can hear racism circulating in a person's words, we see these examples of numerous white women that are calling the police on black people, you know, for things like 
bird watching, swimming in a pool, chalk drawings on a wall. And you have to listen carefully to the way language is weaponized, you know, what they're saying. So in one case, they're saying, this is not your house when it is your house. Or I know the people who live here when the woman actually does not know who lives there. So I think we have to pay close attention to how language is weaponized in these instances. And for some, this language of racism, of populism, of fascism, of this closed thinking, that's what racism is for me. It's closed thinking. Children learn it when they're small. And, you know, Franz Fanon understood this well when he wrote of the Greek grief of recognition and the power of racist language. So many people think that essay that he wrote was about, uh, you know, a white child using a racial slur. That's not what it's about. It's about the way the language is taught to children at an early age and the language of violence, the language of populism, the language of close thought, which is which is what I'm calling racism and how that racism actually is the thing that is propping up every single populist dictator in the world right now. And a lot of the times it's anti-black racism. Yes, you see white supremacist propaganda in the old Dick and Jane stories that many of us were forced to read. Right. You know, I follow the work of the Nobel Prize novelist, J.M. Coetzee. I've followed his work for a long time. And he has a video on YouTube where he gives a lecture at the University of Chicago, where he talks about the children's encyclopedia and how it circulated ideas of three things to him, racism, masculinity, hypermasculinity, and sexism. And he talks about it in the book, how he learned that through reading the children's encyclopedia, which his mother gave him a whole set of, and how reading is so incredibly important. It seems like it's like an ordinary, natural activity. Everyone must learn to read after all. But what you read, how you read, and the ways in which children's readings are mediated matters because it's such a powerful medium of propaganda and thinking. Yes, you speak of the literary and creative arts as being very important in resisting white supremacy and imperial ways of thinking. But it's precisely literature and the arts in general that have been decimated by corporate education. Yes, that's pretty deliberate, I think. The humanities scholars, I think, go haven't helped themselves because, in a way, because their modes of reading are still at times disconnected to the world. You know, it's a particular kind of training, I think, in critical thought and close reading that the literary people give, but they also perpetuate elitism and they also haven't changed their course offerings. I mean, we still read a lot of literature written by white, you know, dead white men, you know, it's a trope, but it's true. And, you know, in Canada, we still don't read a lot of Canadian multicultural literature my first entry into African-American literature was through women writers in the U.S. So I didn't even read Black Canadian writing in in Canada until my adulthood, because we're a Commonwealth country and we stick pretty close to white British literature. So yes, I do think that the humanities scholars haven't been politically astute enough to uh, lift up this kind of work that really provides powerful tools for young people to protest, to think again, to dissent. One thing I was telling you, there's been an incredible resurgence, you know, through social media, not through the schools, of reading during this time of COVID. And this is mostly because people are at home. 
the people on the front lines, the essential workers, black and brown people, the people saving other people's lives don't have this luxury to read. And it's a privilege. But I'll tell you, during this time, Baldwin, Morrison, Fanon, Zora Neale Hurston, Lucille Clifton, these are the people who have carried me through, not the politicians, not the leaders. It's been these writers. And it heartens me, as my colleague at my work, um, Mario DiPolitonio, puts it, that there's a hunger for searching for new ways of seeing and making things appear. Um, Paul Gilroy, the British scholar, he also just tweeted out around a wondering of, about reading and uh, the hunger young people have for concepts, constructs, better perspectives, he says. And he also says what you were talking about, which is your question in a way, is that the moment we're in is really an indictment of our education. It's also an indictment of the humanities. And that's why the humanities have failed, because they haven't been able to keep up with the time and what young people are interested in and what brings meaning to people and significance. You know, people say, oh, the humanities will die and they'll go the way of Latin. But I, I don't agree with that. I think that anything that brings people meaning will never go out of fashion will never not be sought out. Young people are hungry for ideas. And young people feel, feel that they've been lied to. You know, I felt that I was lied to by my education, my parents, my teachers. They taught me to strive for white dreams when they had their own dreams. My parents had their own dreams for us. Or better, better than that, uh, Glenn, they could have tried to instill in us our own dreams, let children find their own dreams, give them tons of reading from every perspective and let them decide. It's really, for me, the only hope to changing this world. What would we know now about the world having wrecked it? What would we know about the lives of young Black people murdering it, killing them? Why would we continue to espouse these things that are actually killing our children? As we've done with these young men or, or children at the border other people's children. So I hold a lot of stakes in reading. Well, you seem yeah. to be certain that young people are hungry for good stuff to read, but we're <laughs> told that young people's attention spans have been steadily shrinking, and we see that articles nowadays are presented with a notation as to how much time it takes to read them, almost like a warning. Well, yeah, I mean, this is all designed to, to lead us off the track of reading in a way. I mean, yeah, I do think young people don't have, might have shorter attention spans. I'm not sure about that because they're on their phones all day reading social media and they're all on their phones all day reading video games. It's just that we haven't figured out how to make an appeal to them. You know, this moment makes an appeal to young people for reading. You know, I'm teaching a lot of young people right now during the summer and they want everything that I have. They want to know where do the slogans from the science come from. My children want to know that. And I tell them, you got to read. you got to read to figure this out, where those slogans come from. They don't come from the air. So reading is the only thing that has changed language. It's the only thing that, that has helped us eradicate all the social ills and make us think differently, you know, like about a word like queer has changed so much from the first time it was put in the lexicon until now. So can we write, rewrite our humanity through reading, you know, as Toni Morrison did for the ex-slaves and beloved, you know, through the revival of a dead infant speaking an unspeakable language, you know, an unspeakable trauma of racism. 
reading isn't a passive exercise. I mean, this is what some people I've heard some of the activists say, well, we don't need to read, we need to riot. But we also need to read to understand why it is we're rioting. You know, we need to read to understand the world, to develop ways of communication that don't have us resorting to violence. Hannah Arendt wrote that violence comes from not understanding, from a breakdown in communication, and, you know, oddly from helplessness. So it's no coincidence that white folks elected a racist white man for their leader after eight years of a black president, of having a black president, and after years and years of a historical education, you know, education that, that doesn't archive the, the actual American history as it is, not as white people wish it could be. Toni Morrison wrote a stunning essay. I don't know if you read it. It's called Morning for Whiteness. And it was after the day that Donald Trump got elected. And in it, she argues that white people would rather commit the most heinous crimes against humanity then accept one black person to their precious white union. And I've read that essay about 50 times since the protests ensued, because it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Why, why such vicious hatred? Why? And I still don't understand. It's not like reading really helps that problem. Yes, people but, are just beginning to understand yeah. hundreds of years since the inception of the country what a white settler state really is. Right. Then you get into these arguments about, you know, whiteness and and then people personalize. Racism is always about something that's made and taken personally when we talk about it. The way that we're caught historically in histories of racism. I'm South Asian. You know, my parents come from Calcutta, India. And so I entered into this work through the experiences of colorism my parents faced when they moved to the U.S. during the civil rights movement. My dad did his postdoc at Yale and my mom didn't have any education. So I've always been suspended in these kinds of contradictions and caught in history. And you don't understand the history, how you know how you're caught. Just like in the Americas, black colorism is exported throughout the world. In Indian communities, beauty is also marked by the fairness of skin. You know, despite the fact that white people saw my mom as white or at least mixed race. And anyways, at the height of the protests against segregation in the 1960s, my parents were viewed as a mixed race couple. They were a South Asian couple that were viewed as a mixed race couple at the time because there was so limited language. No one knew what South Asian was. You were either black or white. This is why language is so important because it starts making distinctions. It helps us understand our history. So, you know, my parents had difficulty renting a room because the Americans viewed my father as black. And my dad actually took up camping, you know, when they had trouble renting hotel rooms because they, people thought they were a mixed race couple. And a white colleague at Yale told us to do that. And so camping became the only way we had holidays. So my friends often say, oh, you're so Canadian, you love camping. But camping was the, was survival for us. It was the way my dad learned to survive. And so then when my brother was born, and this is kind of incredible to me, him and my mom are written as white on his birth notice and my father is black. But my father was grateful for all of this, this because it taught him so much about racism. He viewed it as his time in the U.S. as a gift. He had to work evenings in the lab. And the only friend he had was a man working there, you know, cleaning the labs in the night. 
and he was a black man and he asked him, he said, why don't you ever come out in a day? You know, I'd love to, I'd love to go for lunch with you. And the man just laughed and laughed. And he, I remember him telling me when he was little, he looked into the man's eyes and thought, yeah, I get it now. I understand it. I understand. I understand my own history as, you know, being of casteism and being of the highest caste and understanding uh, untouchables and the ways in which people are separated. It's so arbitrary. There's no reason for it. Why some people are held anti-Black racism and some people are subject to it. And that's all about being caught in history. There's no reason for it. It's just an accident of birth in a way. So this is why works like Toni Morrison's are so important. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.